Hello, and welcome to African Jopadi. My name is Ife. I'm recording from Creel in Scotland. My co-host, um, Dr. Bel Habib, is unable to join us today due to the time difference and, of course, the fact that um, our guests also have so many commitments. So we had to work around the availability of our guests. And so today we're going to be talking about understanding ad hoc security initiatives in Africa. And we have an amazing guest to discuss this topic with us today. Today, we have Dr. Andrew Yao Chi. He is a senior research fellow at the Norwegian Institute of International Affairs, NUPI, a visiting professor at the University of Bokenham, a visiting senior King fellow at King's College London, and an associate fellow at the Royal United Services Institute. At Nubi, he focuses on stabilization, peace operations, peacekeeping, peace building and security assistance in Sub-Saharan Africa and coordinates the training for peace project. He previously worked at the Royal United Services Institute, RUSI, as a senior research fellow and the Obasanjo Fellow. At RUSI, his research focuses on three strands, security approaches in Africa, conflict resilience and prevention in Africa, and peace operations in Africa, with the focal geographical areas being the Han, the Sahel, Lake Chad Basin, and the Gulf of Guinea. Dr. Chie previously worked as a research fellow at the International Institute for Strategic Studies, IIWS in London, and was the editor of the Armed Conflict Database. Whilst there, he led an he led research and analysis on Africa and designed and implemented a series of talks featuring senior African leaders called Africa Sessions. His research at the IIWS focused on peacekeeping, the use of indiscriminate violence in conflicts, responses to conflict and approaches to conflict prevention, mitigation and state building. As a subject matter expert, Dr. Chair is often approached to speak on France 24, BBC and international radio stations to discuss issues on conflict. He previously worked for the United Nations mission in South Sudan as a civil affairs officer. The United Nations Development Program in Nepal and the Commonwealth Secretariat. Dr. Chair is an advisory board member at the Global Terrorism, Terrorism Trends and Analysis Center, GWTAC, at the George Mason University. I mean, you will agree with me that this is really an expert that not only have, you know, the, the academic expertise, but also have the practical expertise to match with it. So welcome, Dr. Andrew Chair, to African Jopadi. Thank you very much. And uh, thank you, colleagues, for having me. You're welcome. So to go straight to the point, I'm just going to ask you, 
what is ad hoc security initiative? What does it entail? Well, ad hoc security initiatives really are regional security initiatives that have developed due to the nature of transnational uh, conflicts, uh, instability, and the way in which the continent is evolving. So an example of a ad hoc security initiative would be, uh, for example, the Lake Chad Basin uh, Commission coming together with the Multinational Joint Task Force uh, and supporting the Multinational Joint Task Force to deal with insecurities in the region of the Lake Chad. This is not something new. Uh, if you think uh, of the term uh, maybe two decades ago, really uh, how ECOMOG and others came together uh, when it came to Sierra Leone and Liberia to deal with the regional issues. The difference is ad hoc security initiatives uh, well, are composed of coalitions of the willing, but here what we see is that they sit outside traditional RECs, and the RECs here, what I mean, are regional economic committees or regional mechanisms that exist, but actually what you're seeing as part of these ad hoc security initiatives are states or uh, countries coming together that not necessarily sit within their RECs or their RMs. In this case, they sit outside of that and they form coalitions to deal with security issues that uh, impact uh, the various states, but also allow for the cross-border issues uh, to maybe chase a terrorist group, for example, that might be mobile across another state, or to deal with cross-border issues as a collective uh, group of, of organized, or a group of individuals, but individuals being here uh, representing the states, as it were, or the states. Okay, thank you so much for clarifying that. And for our listeners that might not know the meaning of ECOMOG, ECOMOG is the Economic Community of West African States Monitoring Group. So Dr. Chie, I'd like to also then follow up by asking you to tell us a bit more. I mean, you can focus on a particular um, issue, be it one related to terrorism or, or, or conflict. But I'd like you to tell us more how this ad hoc security initiative actually work in practice. You can focus on the Lake Chad Basin Commission if that is what you prefer or something else. So I'll keep it sort of general so that people get a, a gist of what um, ad hoc security initiatives are. So if you look at okay. Joint Force of the G5 Sahel, that is what we would call a, 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 an ad hoc security initiative or the Multinational Joint Task Force in the Lake Chad Basin. Or in fact, the RCI, which is the, the uh, RCI-LRA, which was designed to deal with, um, in this case, a large resistance army. Uh, these are what we call ad hoc security initiatives. So again, they're regional or joint uh, organization states, in this case, coming together uh, in a very organic way. So not necessarily forced, not necessarily uh, coexisting in uh, high level structures, but actually states come together to deal with uh, issues uh, that share a specific sub-regional national border uh, to really trying to deal with shared transnational threats. Um, and in this case, what they are doing is they're collaborating and coordinating their responses to deal with the issues that are taking place on the ground. So a lot of these ASIs uh, that have evolved or what we see now is it, there was a feeling or a sense that uh, for many years that uh, 
the existing regional security arrangements, in this case, uh, if you take the regional economic committees or regional mechanisms, and even to a large extent, the African standby force, the concept of the African standby force, didn't really fulfill their requirements. And what I mean by requirements is it didn't tackle the regional issues that they had, particularly because these are transnational and they cross over from different borders. If you think about Chad, uh, that sits in a different regional economic community than Nigeria and uh, Cameroon and, and whatnot. And so the, really what the ad hoc security initiatives does, it allows these states or countries to come together to form that unique coordination and collaboration uh, towards a response, in this case, the issue of terrorism that crosses border, if you take the Lake Chad, uh, in this case, we're thinking about Boko Haram here. How do you deal with that cross-border issue? To be able to respond to the group collectively. Now, that is quite new because oftentimes, if you think about uh, stuff that took place in the in the early 90s, uh, really off the back of the agenda for peace, uh, really what you saw was this big, large UN multinational uh, dimensional uh, peacekeeping uh, forces being deployed. Now, we've slightly moved away from that to more either African Union-led uh, peace support operations, what you see in Somalia and through the Amazon, or in this case here, what we're seeing more now is these ad hoc re regional or ad hoc security initiatives that are really evolving and, and becoming the next, uh, the next sort of new wave of security arrangements start taking place. What is quite interesting uh, from what we see in, in our own analysis, uh, that is us at the, the New, New Region Institute for International Affairs, is that it's, it's one, organic, two, it provides the flexibility for uh, the ASIs to be able to, again, cross over borders to pursue militias, uh, to deal with armed groups, insurgencies, and the threats that occur. But also, a lot of these uh, ASIs that are being formed are actually being led by the states themselves. So they're uh, not necessarily, uh, as you were traditionally, you know, sort of uh, waiting for the UN to lead the way. And these are actual states that have come together and say, actually, there's a problem. How do we do this? How do we reduce the threat? How do we have collective self-defense or interventions uh, to deal with um, the, the issue under Article 51? So again, using uh, the UN system for their own benefits to help them deal with the issues. Um, and how do they... Um, allow for each participating country to contribute resources. So in, in this case, if you look at the multinational joint task force, a lot of those resources are contributed by the Nigerian state. Uh, and that is, again, a new model, something that we're what, not necessarily used to, but it's something that is quite good to see because actually what it means is that African countries, uh, particularly in these regions, are dealing with their own issues. They're taking the lead. Um, and so contrary to what we oftentimes hear that, now, African leaders and leadership, yes, it has structural issues and weaknesses, but what you are seeing is these mechanisms come together to lead the way on uh, peace and security issues. What is also interesting is that they're adapting to a large extent some of the concepts from the African standby force. So while the African standby force uh, hasn't been deployed, some of the key concepts that are in there, they are using and utilizing them uh, to deal with their own regional issues as part of this ASI um, development. And so what you are seeing now is that the AU's making steps towards not only just supporting, but also trying to make sure that these ASIs meet AU standards as well. So while uh, some of these uh, ASIs have now seeked UN endorsement, 
uh, or the African Union Peace and Security Recognition, uh, what you are seeing is that some of the adaptations from the policies of the African Union, which were developed as a response, or should I say, as a mechanism for the ASF, African Standby Force, are now being used for the ASIs. And so what we see is, like as I said earlier, is this, this aggregated version or form of security arrangements, which is supporting regional security, but also the wider continental uh, security issues that we see across uh, the various parts of the African continent. Thank you so much for that detailed explanation. And whilst you were talking about the situation, I had a question playing up in my mind, but then somehow as part of your conversation, you somehow highlighted on the fact that countries were actually taking the initiative without necessarily waiting for outside entities um, to, to take the lead. But there's also something I'd like you to then clarify, because in talking about the positive, which is absolutely admirable to see, I wanted to clarify then whether when countries take the initiative, whether they also go a step further to fund these initiatives or whether they rely on outside entities. Because in your conversation, you mentioned African standby force a lot, even though it's not necessarily fully implemented. We know that a lot of the funding is coming from entities like the European Union, for example. So for this particular ad hoc security initiatives that we're discussing, is it that countries take the lead in forming it and also funding it, or do they rely on outside entities? I think it's a combination of both. I think you can't okay. sort of, um, you, uh, and when I mean both, I mean there is a mixture of states funding, uh, providing the troops for, um, in some cases, there might be more training. So if you see, for example, the G5 said, there's a lot of training that is done by the EU training mission. Um, mm -hmm. As is, uh, you know, the UK has been training Nigerian forces uh, and, and so on and so on. So I think it's a mixed bag. I wouldn't say it's purely that Europeans are leading or, you know, Western states are leading. Uh, it's definitely African-led. And what I mean by African-led is it's oftentimes the African... Uh, you might have the, the head of the, the, the military and this African-led that puts in place the plans, uh, puts in place the strategy in conjunction with other aspects, of course. Um, what is important, uh, and I think what I wasn't saying was that the ASF has been deployed, because I think this is where people mix up ASF and ASI. The ASF hasn't been deployed, though we know it has been ready since, I believe it's 2015, maybe 16. Mm -hmm. What is what is interesting here is that the concepts of AS, ASF, uh, as in African Standby Force, are also being used within ASIs. And so what I mean from that is that there are aspects of the ASF, if you think about the deployment regional capacity to deal with uh, cross-border issues, that would sit under the AU and the regional bodies, and in this case, the wider uh, global security, which is under the UN Security Council, mm -hmm. ASIs are, have nicely fit into that. And so that is a unique thing that I think has been African-led. Now, it's like I said, it's not something that is new, because if you think about coalitions of the of the women, uh, and you think about ECOMOG in, the, in West Africa and their deployment and whatnot, that is similar. But again, what's distinct, uh, what, what is distinct from ASIs to what you saw in ECOMOG was that actually this is not within the region itself. This is different countries within maybe a region. Uh, and this is why I use the example of Chad and Nigeria sitting in both different recs, but actually compliant with one another. 
uh, in this model. Uh, and so that is what is unique here. Uh, and again, you know, it's different from traditional peacekeeping operations or peace support operations, uh, because these are not necessarily, uh, you know, UN mandated per se. They might seek authorization uh, from the Peace and Security Council or the AU uh, Peace and Security Council. But in essence, ASIs have no, I mean, they are they, they're largely military led, but oftentimes have been formed from pre-existing uh, systems that might exist. So if you take the MNTGF, uh, it, that has been re uh, sort of ignited uh, from the Lake Chad Basin Commission. And in this case, the, the commission that comes together that forms the basis of, of what takes place. Uh, and so its drive, as it were, is also in conjunction with uh, the Lake Chad uh, Basin Commission um, and the RSS, the Regional Stabilization Strategy. And so these components are working together to be able to coordinate their own efforts, not just from the military perspective, but also from a stabilization stroke uh, uh, stable or should I say a peace building effort as well. So that is what is quite unique and different here. Um, and as I said, um, you know, ASIs don't necessarily have the civilian dimensions per se, like you would have in a traditional uh, international African or peacekeeping support operation. But uh, as I said, they do take concerts from the ASF, which is again, despite the ASF not being deployed, it actually shows that it has worked long-term in the sense that some of those concepts have been used and deployed to, to, um, to certain situations today in Africa, which is, which is a good thing. Yeah, it is absolutely um, a very good thing. And I like the fact that you had to sort of, you know, clarify some of the points, especially around the importance of taking the lead and also making taking the necessary steps to ensure that what they started is implemented. And of course, recognizing the support that comes from outside entities. Then the next question, of course, because as you were talking, you mentioned it come a couple of times, which we know, and I know that there are limitations and people have different perspectives as to what success entails. However, overall, one can say that ECOMOG missions were reasonably or relatively successful. So I wonder whether you're able to sort of give us some examples of success stories of the um, AI um, the security initiatives that exist presently, whether there are any examples of the ad hoc security initiatives that reflect success? I, I mean, I, I think it depends on uh, how you uh, rate, or should I say, um, how you measure success. Um, you know, by and large, if you were to look at, and, and let me draw an example here, uh, the, the critical one, which everyone sort of always throws down is, is, is Amazon. Uh, and largely everyone would say, you know, Amazon has not been successful, not done this, not done. But actually, if you look at each internal assessment by the AU uh, and each independent assessment that has been done on, on, uh, on the Amazon mission itself, it has met all of its goals. It has met what it was supposed to do. So whatever the mandate has been, it has met that. The, the difference being, as I said, success is relative in the sense that, you know, I could argue that for, for large large part, the MNTJF has been successful in dealing with some aspects of what its mandate required it to do. However, as you know, and everyone else who really follows African politics every day, a lot of it also depends on the nature of, of the conflict, what is going on on the ground, dynamics, but also internal political issues as well. So, you know, it's, it's, it's 
it's a difficult one to say, yes, has it made its, has it been successful? I would argue to a large extent, you know, if you look at the LRA, uh, the Laws of Resistance Army, and where they are today, you could argue, yes, actually, the RCI, LRA, was successful in dealing with what it had to deal with at the time, uh, because to a large extent, the LRA have moved on, and yes, they still exist as a group, but they're not as effective as they once were. Um, Boko Haram, for example, yes, we know there's been peaks and troughs and whatnot, but there were also periods, particularly, I believe, in 2012 and uh, subsequently after, where Boko Haram uh, had its, its peak periods probably were troughed. And again, I'm not a, a Boko Haram expert, but you can see definitely that there were periods, and even now, you're seeing because of the death of, of the leadership and, and whatnot, that you're seeing that the, the group has been dispersed. So, you know, it, it, it's... It, Yes, to a degree, they have been effective in dealing uh, with the issue, but I think it, it also depends on your sort of understanding of what effectiveness is, or should I say success, as you, you point out in your question is. And I think to a large extent, maybe more the G5 Sahel, where they have struggled, I think that is something that you can say, yes, they haven't been as successful as other ASI missions that exist, uh, as again, again, uh, LRA here, or RCI, LRA, and uh, the mission that you see in uh, Lake Chad Basin, MNTGF. Okay, well, thank you so much for clarifying further. And I guess now that we have duly recognized, you know, we understand the complexities around defining success, the next thing would be, what are some of the challenges you've identified, you know, in the course of following these initiatives? And I guess we should identify the challenges first, and then the next thing would be, what can be done differently to ensure they are more effective? So the challenges first. I think some of the challenges have been resources. Uh, okay. uh, and what I mean by resources is uh, these, even though the costs are shared by member states or individual states that contribute to, um, to this uh, initiative, uh, they're not in abundance. So uh, I think the large part of the multinational joint task force, uh, its funding is, is from obviously from the Nigerian state, which means other states aren't contributing as equally. Now, obviously you could argue that it's relative because it, you know, Boko Haram emerged from there and whatnot, but also I think what is, what is while you have that challenge of maybe funding and resources, the unique thing is that Chad has stepped up and provided troops. So you, you have that sort of balance. And I think you, you're never going to find a perfect model. Um, you know, a, a lot of that is structural. And what I mean structural is, you know, if African states were, and this is me going off on a tangent here, but were to be given what is rightfully theirs in terms of, you know, uh, the raw materials that they, they produce and then sell off and whatnot at the right level, you know, Africa would definitely be able to fund themselves uh, if the economic sort of trade and agreements were, were on the level playing field. Um, but that being said, funding and resources are a challenge for African states. And so what you, what you are seeing is that while there's a willingness to do that, oftentimes it lags behind. It lags behind in the sense that, you know, maybe a mission or the, the, the forces that are being uh, recommended or deployed um, don't have the necessary equipment or necessary training to deal with that type of type of conflict or the, the sort of violence that is taking place. And so you always have this lag. And that is the difficulty, I think, with, with most African states dealing with, uh, with these sort of even internal issues. Uh, the resources and the funding for them isn't there. But I don't think it's one of those things where you can just, you know, overfund because that's not in itself a solution. Um, that doesn't deal with 
the problem. Uh, and again, the, the, the core shouldn't just be about military focusing on, you know, providing money and, and resources. Yes, that is a challenge, but it should also be about how the state provides resources, but also enables people uh, to economically do well for themselves. And, and I think if, if African can re, realign that balance here uh, in terms of economic development, uh, development in general for people, um, then you won't have to have these ASIs in, in essence because you're balancing things in the right direction. So yes, resourcing is an issue. Yes, funding is an issue, I think, for most of these uh, because again, uh, they, they are resources that come from the member states, but also funding that comes from member states, i.e. through other mechanisms. Um, but I don't think that's necessarily the, the whole entire challenge or solution. I think a lot of it is rebalancing how things are done, as I said, um, the corrections that could be done not just through resourcing and, and funding, but also this, the way in which states uh, behave, but also provide resources for their people as well. Thank you so much for that. So in discussing the challenges, you've also described some of the solution because, I mean, the reality which you've also touched on, you've highlighted the fact that the solution doesn't or shouldn't necessarily be um, true, be sourced through armament alone but rather it can coexist in a way that, okay, we're responding to this conflict, but at the same time, we're ensuring that, you know, future agitators do not join the fight, the fight. Because if you continue with some of the things that actually led to where we are now or where you are as a state presently, and then trying to solve that problem through armament alone without trying to also solve the socioeconomic issues in your respective countries, then things are likely to get worse. So I wonder whether it's actually possible because a lot of the times, okay, apart from the fact that we're discussing generally about conflict, terrorism, and every other thing in between, but you also find in relation to perhaps maritime security issues, for example, some people would argue, oh, perhaps it's better for us to focus on one thing at a time because the sustainable development on land, for instance, is going to be a long-term vision. As a result, we need to focus on just the short-term vision of ensuring the security and stability for now, and then focus on the long-term part um, later. Do you see this as a, value, um, a valid argument, or do you think that both of them can coexist in the context of the conflict in the Sahel, the insurgency and, and insecurity in the countries that you research? Do you think that armament and socioeconomic development can coexist together, or is it a case that you agree with some of the people that of the opinion that we focus on armament for now to stem the tides of the issue and then focus on sustainable development later? I, I think they have to coexist with each other. I mean, I, I I'm not a I'm not a sort of a person that goes in and says, you know, let's let's get the guns in and and, and start shooting up things. I don't, I don't agree with that that sort of working position. So I, I think that's very detrimental and history has constantly shown us. I mean, you look at Vietnam, you look at Afghanistan, you look at Iraq uh, once and twice over, you know, even if you look at parts of, uh, you know, Nigeria where that's happening, and I don't want to mention the, the particular state where that's happened before, it doesn't mm -hmm. resolve the, the issue. South Sudan, Sudan, it mm -hmm. just ends up in this spiral of messiness. So for me, I, I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm not someone that says, okay, it should be security led, but I also understand the value that security aspect or lens can bring. And, and what I mean by that is, if you have a, a group that is constantly 
um, not just threatening, but also damaging, but also destroying and to a large extent, uh, eliminating your people, you have to respond to that. So I'm not saying, well, it, you know, it shouldn't just be development. No, I think it needs to be a combination of things that worked in conjunction with Navar uh, to, to move the state forward. So for me, I sit with the position that it needs to be part of a, a coherent, uh, uh, but also okay, uh, coherent, but also cohesive stabilization strategy. And what I mean by that is it it needs to be agile to the situation on the ground. It needs to be able to respond to what is going on, but it needs to have a short and long term goal. And what I mean by short, I, I'm not just mean dealing with terrorist groups. That's that might be a short term initiative, or you know, uh, some DDR programs, or whatnot. But it needs to include the people. And what I'm not for is this sort of large international or stroke funding where it's like let's put lots of money into this and solve it by training up troops and we can militarize everything and it, it will solve the problem no that's not going to do it it needs to be backed up with sustainable development goals funding uh, initiatives but also uh, it needs to be local and what i mean by that is it needs to be generated by the people the people on the ground know what the issues are the people on the ground know what the problems are and the people on the ground know who the people are. There is no point in us trying to sit here and debate and saying, well, you know, it, it makes sense for, again, uh, Western states to pump in lots of money to build up security uh, forces. And that's going to be a solution dealt with. Terrorist groups are going to go, no, you're going to create new grievances. People are going to get harmed and killed in the, in the process. So what do you do? How do you complement the two? And so for me, what I see as a solution, particularly for African states, are more regional stabilization strategies. And what I mean by that is a package, a comprehensive package of various different funding pots and solutions that are people-led, or should I say people-centered, that put the people at the focus and not necessarily the state. What we see, and you, you see this particularly around elections. So for example, Kenya is now heading into elections and you know, we saw this in DRC, we see this uh -huh. in Nigeria, we see this in Ghana. Like everyone goes, well, the leadership, the leadership, leadership. And everyone focuses on the leader, but actually neglects what is going down at the local level. So for me, it's how do we build the institutions that move Africa forward? How do we build the people that are leading things at the community level, at the you know, provincial state level, that are going to move uh, their states and their people forward? They're the ones who are going to advocate the issues because they are the ones who know what is going on on a daily basis, not the person sitting in the capital. Yeah? Uh, yeah. And you, know, you see this, for example, and I've, I've probably gone off on one, but I, hopefully it will make sense. In the Ghana, you know, when we have elections, the biggest topic that comes up is corruption. And mm. you know, you see leader come and say, "Yep, yeah, we're going to deal with corruption. We're going to deal with corruption. We're going to deal with corruption." Every year, this is a every time we go to election, this is a, a, a sort of an automatic pledge. But it doesn't deal with the heart of the situation. If you build institutions that can govern and that can put people in their place and hold them accountable when there is corruption, as opposed to putting it on the political party or, in this case, the leader, then we can move things forward. But that doesn't happen. What you see is the other opposite, which is, well, let's put it in this leader because we hope that this leader can build this issue and move things forward. And so for me, it's about flipping uh, the, the coin or flipping the way in which you focus. So as opposed to looking at the top, how do we look at the bottom and build things up? And how do we support the mid-range? In this case, institutions that can go beyond the leader and the institution that can go beyond just the political wave and, and whatnot. So for me, it's the same thing. If you look at stabilization strategies or approaches, 
In this case, I'm looking at the regional stabilization strategy in the Horn. I've argued that there should be a similar one for the Horn of Africa. There should be one for the Sahel, where, example, the African Union can support the regional bodies that exist, the uh -huh. state, through technical capacity. I mean, a good example is the Gambia. You know, when uh, the, the, the switchover happened, the, the Gambia president reached out to the African Union and said, look, we need this technical support, we need this. And the African Union came up and delivered. So that's what I think is really important. We, we need to move away from this sort of large institutional-based thinking. It, it doesn't help. We need to think more people-centered. We need to think more locally. We need to think more capacity building. But again, that's how we build the sustainability, not just combining it with hard security, but also combining it with the long-term stabilization strategies, which is to empower people. Uh, we want a situation where we can empower people to be able to do it for themselves. Not because the funding is there, but because people have the solutions and know what the solution is for themselves. And this is absolutely a very good way to sum things up and something that is absolutely very important because you cannot understand the context of a problem more than the people that leave the situation, regardless of the expertise or years you might have spent solving the problem or, or sort of spent studying the issue. You cannot understand the contest, the local contest, especially more than the people that leave that situation, which is why it is absolutely important to also take into account local ownership. You know, what contributions can they make and what support can you provide as a government to ensure that the communities that are experiencing some of these challenges are collectively together working with you to be part of yes, the solution. Yes. And, and let me give you an example, another example. I, I remember being in Ghana in 1990, uh, despite my very English accent, I remember being in Ghana, <laughs> Ghana uh, during 94. So when things were transitioning from uh, into the fourth, say when Rollins and whatnot, and then the Kunanaka Fordor was coming into power. So I was there during that period. And, and, and what I recall was, particularly where I lived, was you had these community groups and people that came together to say, actually, we are not happy with what things are, and this is what we want. And applying pressure, not only on the party, but also on the state to reform, on the state to do things differently. Mm -hmm. We've moved away from that. For some odd reason, since the 90s, we focus on the leadership. And when I say we, I'm talking about international organizations and whatnot. Yeah. So, you know, a typical example, someone flies in from London or from wherever they do, uh, they fly in, they go into, uh, <laughs> I'll give you another example, they, they fly into the capital, they do a few interviews with people and then they fly yeah. back out. Prime example, amazing. Yeah, I mean, you know, the person's like, yeah, I've collected some data information. This is the policy. Uh, helicopter, I mean, helicopter, helicopter. In and out, you know, it's it's in and out. I mean, I, I don't want to name the, 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 the organisation, but when I worked in South Sun, very yeah. same thing. You know, people would fly in, spend a day, oh, a few things, and then boom, they're out again. And yeah. then you stop and think, well, hold on, there are all of these issues. Uh, and one of the things that I learned, particularly uh, but from working and living in the, in the field, uh, you know, I lived in Upper Now uh, during the, the South Sudan conflict. And one of the things I learned this from this uh, lady, uh, and uh, we used to call her Auntie Jo, you know, old, wise African mother, just she knew it all. And, you know, one day we had this person come in and she said, look, oh, I'm going to implement this. I'm going to implement that. And she said, hold on, young lady. And she said, to her, hold on, young lady. I've been here seven years and I can tell you just because this community says this and you give this, what are you doing long term? Yes, you want to do something good. And in this case, it was providing some resources and whatnot. But think about the wide dynamics. 
by supplying to one, what is the impact you're having on the other communities? What is the harm that you are causing? And so what she was trying to get the young lady to do was to take a step back from her Western ways of thinking, as yeah. in, I need to save somebody, to more, what is the wider dynamics at play here? And so I think, particularly for Africans, young Africans who are researchers, policymakers and whatnot, we need to also take that step back to think, what are the wider uh, prospects here? What are the wider impacts that we are causing? You know, not just saying things for saying things because it's the buzzword, but actually what are the short-term, long-term, medium goals that we're trying to achieve for the African continent? And is it just about providing money, resources, or uh, training for the military that props up the same president that stays yeah. in power and then makes the constitution reform? Or is it about beyond that now? And, and so that's what I mean. You know, in the last 20, 30 years, a lot of it's gone into the, the leaders, the same elites, the same people causing the problems, and yet still we, stay, we keep on doing the same mistakes. And my question is, if that hasn't worked for the last 30 years, how do we disaggregate that to give in to the people, and in this case, the people and institutions that are on the ground that are doing the work, as opposed to the same things that we know are corrupt, embezzled with funds, and then we yeah. continue losing money again and again and again. Yeah. Yeah, that's really something very important to say. And I thank you for, for highlighting that point. And I want to also thank you for, I mean, so much for your time, for speaking to us about this very important topic, not only about the topic itself, which is ad hoc security initiative, but the way you also try to integrate other things to help us understand better what the continent is doing differently, um, some of the success stories, the limitations, and what can be done differently to ensure that sustainable, effective result is the, the final outcome. So thank you again for being here with us. Thank you so much for having me. And to our listeners, thank you so much for listening and we hope um, that you can join us in another episode. Take care. Bye.